everybody, welcome to the Media Pod. My name is Julia Arcega and I am the editor in chief of Media File. And I will let my fellow compatriots here introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Josh Axelrod, I'm the politics editor. Hi, I'm Rob, Rob Klein, and I am the opinions editor. I'm Caroline Corbett, and I'm the copy editor. Great. Um, so today is Wednesday, March 7th. Tomorrow is International Women's Day, Thursday, March 8th. And so we would just like to start this podcast off with the topic of wonderful women. Um, first, we're just going to jump right into the woman in the White House, Melania Trump. And I think Josh wanted to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, one of my lovely politics writers, uh, Catherine Moran, wrote a great piece, I think it was two weeks ago now, on Melania's prickly relationship with the media and just her general aversion to the the national spotlight. Um, Yeah, if if you haven't noticed, we don't hear much from Melania. The only time we really hear about her now is in terms of her marriage to Trump and all of Trump's alleged extramarital affairs, Mm -hmm. which a stark contrast to uh, Michelle Obama's news cycles, Mm -hmm. which were mostly incredibly positive. Um, But as uh, as Catherine pointed out, actually, there was a Gallup poll in January that said 54% of Americans view Melania uh, favorably. Mm -hmm. So you got to wonder if if America generally likes her, why does she feel the need to hide so much? Catherine laid out a bunch of different options, like she doesn't like the liberal bias that everyone in the Trump administration says hits them, but also Melania may or may not believe hits her. She tries to champion cyberbullying, and people always call her out for not calling Say her husband anything. out. Yeah. And she probably doesn't like that. Again, anytime she hears the name Stormy Daniels, I'm sure she just wants to go to sleep for a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not, e- it's not easy being Melania <laughs> or uh, being the, anyone in the media trying to cover Melania. Yeah. Right I don't think now. it ever has been. I'm thinking back to the almost a year ago now when she completely stole Michelle Obama's speech. <laughs> I think since then the media has been extremely tough on her. And I think you're right. Uh, not just a liberal bias, but I think some liberals have just been downright mean to Melania mm-hmm. in a sense that, I don't know, I guess airing her dirty laundry. I understand that the first family... But I think sometimes there is a line where people try to call her out for, you know, not being feminist enough or... I, I understand the, the bullying thing, though. Yeah. I think that's a place where the media should kind of say, well, yeah. you can't really champion this issue. Well, and something that, although that is her issue, it's not that she's doing much about it in the first place. And that's a big part of her staying out of the eye of the media is that, you know, you can't... There's no way for her to be the first lady with... Um, a campaign on anything without being in the media spotlight all the time. So she's clearly prioritizing her own uh, camera shy nature, uh, why ever she's choosing to be that way over having um, a campaign that could do a lot of good for people. The fact that she's hardly in the media at all kind of erases her accountability because it's really hard to call somebody out if there's, there's very little to call them out on in the first place. And if you are calling them out, they're not responding. They're not making media appearances. They're not doing anything to combat what you're saying. So it can appear um, very one-sided from the media, but a position like First Lady has always been one that's very um, close with the media, and she's sort of throwing them a curveball, and they, they don't really know how to react. Like, I feel like with First Ladies, you always see, you, you see First Ladies trying to make their own mark, like, say, people like Hillary Clinton, you know, or Michelle Obama, very outspoken women. And so here you see the exact opposite where there's kind of this void. And I feel like it's a void that lets just Trump be Trump. And she's just not there. If she doesn't want to engage with the media, I don't think anyone should force her. But 
it's just a pretty interesting dynamic. This is a little behind the scenes about that article. Um, there was a part of it that I told Catherine to take out because I wasn't sure how it was going to read. She, I forget who she was quoting, but it was someone who was making the point that it's not fair to compare Melania to to like Hillary Clinton or Michelle Obama because she's been a housewife her whole life, mm. which is hella offensive to yeah. housewives. Oh yeah, sure. but is a point in its own right. The way to say that nicely is that uh, Michelle and Hillary have years of legal and other experience under their belt, sure. and Melania was a model mm-hmm. who was not involved in politics in any way, shape, or form. Until now. So her experience level is definitely lower than those right. than those two. So it's just a weird comparison all around. But again, there is a super sexist undercurrent to, to co- any conversation like that. So I only brought that up because... Yeah. You know, it's relevant, but... Well, if we want to also include Trump women with more, quote-unquote, you know, of a a political or social standing, we can also talk about Ivanka Trump, which is, like, very obvious. Like, she's for women, and she's out there being the front lines of the delegation at the closing ceremonies um, for the Winter Olympics. And so you kind of see her silence, not her silence, but her refusal to kind of engage with questions about Trump's various trysts with um, Stormy Daniels and um, the Playboy model, Karen McDougal. And I think that's an interesting dynamic, too. Just because Chelsea Clinton basically said Ivanka Trump is fair game, which I thought was an interesting quote from her. Moving on to another Trump-related woman (laughs) who is behind the scenes, much like, not much like Melania, but more so... Um, out of the media, you could say, or doesn't really make a lot of statements to the media, Hope Hicks. She's left. She's gone. She's, she's still in the White House, but she's she's leaving. I know Caroline. Yeah. Something that I wanted to t- address about Hope Hicks um, is that she very much falls into the same boat as Melania when it comes to avoiding the press and therefore avoiding accountability, um, because we all know that so it's, it's said that she's Trump's real daughter um, and has more control over his tantrums um, or temper than most people in the White House, according to inside sources um, and Fire and Fury, which that says for me is that she has her hands in a lot of things that she doesn't want to address with the media. So she just doesn't even put herself out there to, to defend it. I think it's just a broader theme among all of the women that have um, been very prominent um, or influential in the Trump White House is that half of America sees them as traitors to their their gender and their socialization um, as women, where, you know, I think on on the Democratic side, all women, as you know, we have Me Too going on right now, we feel a collective responsibility to lift each other up. Yet you have these women who, you know, in the face of every single day having national criticism of Trump's relationship with women stand up and defend him. And it's really easy to see why they want to avoid having any accountability, avoid talking to the press, avoid answering these tough questions, because the media is just ravenously curious. I think Hope Hicks is kind of, I think I agree in the sense that Hope Hicks, she's probably, there's been a lot, a lot written about her, uh, like speculating. She, like no one really knows the sound of her voice. Yeah, she doesn't <laughs> give anything away. Um, she's very guarded. And it's actually really interesting because there's, a, Olivia Nuzzi actually tried to write a profile on Hope Hicks. Mm-hmm. Um, she's kind of this mysterious character right. in the Trump White House who has a lot of clout. And she pretty much wouldn't give 
Olivia Nezzi an interview, she asked, she asked Olivia Nezzi to write, to ask everybody else about her, but not do an interview with her, which is very interesting. And I think Hope Hicks is a different beast because she is a PR professional. Mm -hmm. And there was this excellent reader um, on BuzzFeed News. It's titled, Hope Hicks has been able to spin every White House scandal except her own. Right. So Hope Hicks has kind of been prided in being able to be in the background really quiet, being able to orchestrate everything. She, according to this reader, um, she's been in the room for every single major Trump interview that he's given. Um, So she's always been there, but she's always behind the scenes, behind the camera. You know, with the Rob Porter scandal, that kind of like blew her wide open in the sense that it was her personal life and, you know, all of a sudden people were following her around and taking pictures of her. And there's a quote here and it says, by simply being involved, meaning by simply dating Rob Porter and just by being there, Hicks has committed the cardinal publicist sin. She became the story. So I think by design, Hope Hicks was probably, as part of her job description, she was probably more on the other side of things. But, you know, you bring up a good point. Like, what does Hope Hicks really think? By the Trump woman in general being so screened off, you want to pry forward and pry in to see what they actually think of this, like, guy who's so forward. Right. Um, or by, by guy, I mean Trump. So forward about his opinions. And everyone around him, everyone, all the women around him seem to be so quiet. Right. And yeah. I mean, it just raises a lot of questions about how far the media should go because I mean these these people are like and are not um, in positions of, of immense power and we have the responsibility to hold them accountable but you know once again if people don't want to be pursued by the media and they don't want to give interviews and they don't want people to know anything about them it's it's within their jurisdiction to make sure that doesn't happen. To keep in mind um, with Hope Hicks is that she's gone but I think her ghost will remain in the Russia investigation. Oh, of course. Um, uh-huh. And she, uh, I've, I saw some journalists claim that the, the reason she might have left was because the whole white lies statement, mm. which yes. basically is um, uh, that she told the congressional investigators for the Russia investigation that she sometimes has to tell Trump white, little white lies. Mm-hmm. Which Trump literally, I believe, called her stupid for saying that, <laughs> quote-unquote yeah. stupid. Right. So, that was said as the reason she resigned. I think there was a lot of other things that were said in that interview with investigators that mm-hmm. will definitely come up. And if she really is this Trump whisperer, then <laughs> not only does she know everything he knows about mm-hmm. the Russia investigation, yeah. she was probably there for anything that might have happened. Yeah. Or yeah. facilitating communication. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it's Rob Mueller's subpoena to that idiot Sam Nunberg, um, <laughs> who did this whole drunk, media drunk blitz. Um, uh, yeah, that was one of the people that he subpoenaed. Uh, all communications regarding Hope Hicks, not even to and from Hope Hicks. Mm-hmm. So that's certainly interesting. Even though Nunberg was a small little figure in the Trump universe, it, it's like a little crack in the windshield, I think. All these yeah. ex-Trump staffers, they should keep him up at night. <laughs> yeah. They theoretically know where all the bodies are buried. Uh-huh. I mean, Nunberg, Nunberg was going on national TV calling Donald Trump an idiot. Like, <laughs> yeah, I would say to his face, and I only say that because Trump is probably watching. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was that was nuts. Yeah, that was crazy. <laughs> There's nothing else to say about that other than that. That was, that was just... crazy. And, and I mean, like a lot of people. I think I saw. Uh, I'm doing this. I think I saw an article today or like <laughs> yesterday, but uh, it was like criticism for cable news for running with it. 
for rent taking Nunberg's calls because it was like a hot mess. Um, I mean, it was good TV, so that's probably why they did it. But Aaron Burnett telling him that he, she smelled alcohol. alcohol. In his I saw oh that. my god! Once no. I saw that, I didn't know that. Yeah. Did she? Yeah, she oh, did. She did. My, my question, my question is, was he drinking all day, or did he get to like his fifth interview and was like, "I need a drink," and then went on Aaron Burnett? Did I know? don't know. When I that's first heard, when I first heard the first call that uh, that he made to Katie Turr, yeah. like he sounded like really just, just loose. loose. He sounded yeah. loose. So Great probably, to Katie Turf for not losing her composure. I know she was just she was just rolling with it. Well, and what I'll say about them running with the story, even though it was obviously insanity, um, I think that you know you never know what somebody might let slip when they put themselves under that much pressure. So I don't fault them for running with the story throughout the day because yeah. I mean, what if at you know 11 p.m. he said something that was just an absolute bombshell mm-hmm. and. Especially drunk. He yeah, said, especially he said, drunk. <laughs> he did say, he, he did said drop a few, a few things that were yeah. uh, revealing, I guess. Mm-hmm. He might have <laughs> even gotten himself in trouble with the law because, not just because he was avoiding subpoenas, but because he might have actually said things in these interviews that he wasn't allowed to say in public. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. Skip it. On to, still on the woman beat, we're going to talk about NRA's Dana Losh? Losh? Losh. Loach, I think Dana Loesch. Losh. We're going to roll with it. But she is the national spokesperson, woman, national spokeswoman for the NRA. And she had quite a lot to say at CPAC, basically telling the media that they love mass shootings because of the ratings, calling the media amoral. She kind of went on a tangent. Yeah, what, what I'm thinking about this, once again, she's sort of a spectacle um, of a just because partly just because of her gender and then obviously because she's saying some things that are very uh, controversial and something that she did that really struck me was that she specifically called out other women while she was talking about this she her quote was um the media loves crying white mothers it was just something to unpack and you know you've got this this woman up there who is talking about other women's pain and strife over losing their children as something that as a tool and you know I understand that her point was that the mainstream media was making it into a tool but you know I see from our perspective the mainstream media is covering you know people who are begging for their stories to be told because they feel like they lost their children unjustly and her perspective is that they are the the tools or the objects we haven't uh, we haven't mentioned Kellyanne yet there's oh, another yeah. another yeah. big uh, woman in the, in this conversation. Yeah. He's been kind of in hiding for a while too. And yeah. one who well now she's <laughs> she violated oh, the hatch well, act twice. Well, yeah. So yeah. I guess that's why she's in hiding. I was thinking about her as well, and I I thought that the thing that sets her apart from all the other women that we were just talking about, aside for, from the NRA woman, is that she opened herself up to the the criticism um, and the accountability, and she just got lambasted, and she didn't last very long. So I think that she almost served as a um, a cautionary tale for the other woman in the White House. I think she also when we when Trump came to power, and it was like an instant shock of like this guy is the president. I think the media took her and just turned her into like an avatar for all of their frustrations. Oh yeah, oh, I agree. And she, she and she was there for it too. Yeah. Uh-huh. She, she kept her... coming back. Right, yeah. Maybe she's a... Well, listen, you have the Hope Hicks who don't say anything and then you have Kellyanne who leads the parade. <laughs> yeah. There's a dichotomy yes. here. Yes. Diversity! Yes. And, on <laughs> and on that note, 
We'll switch to Parkland. Very serious topic. Um, and a lot's been going on with that. And a lot of people have sounded off about the media coverage regarding Parkland. So, Josh, why don't you get us started? And then, Rob, you can finish this off. Okay. So I was really, really proud of this article by um, one of my writers, Austin. I'm going to butcher his name. Austin Elias de Jesus. Actually, actually, I'm not. That was an easy name. Yeah, that's good. Um, <laughs> so he wrote a great piece um, comparing what... Uh, what was going on in Parkland? I'm laughing at something that those those two just did. Um, comparing what's going on with Parkland to what happened after the 1999 shooting at Columbine High School, which I feel like in the American consciousness is like the first high school student shooting that I think people think of. I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not, but certainly is for me. Maybe it's because we're young. And yeah, the NRA came out in full force, trying to discredit everyone uh, involved on the other side of the debate. Uh, they were blaming video games and Marilyn Manson for uh, the shooter's violence. Um, then, great quote from Austin in the article. When you quote, when you look back into the archives, though, what's notably absent are the voices of the students actually affected. End quote. And that's what the main difference today is that the Parkland kids have been, they've been training for this their whole lives, mm -hmm. just in terms of the fact they're all social media experts. And more importantly, they're teenagers who are good at good dunking on people online, as they say, which is what these kids have just been doing mercilessly mm -hmm. to Twitter trolls for the last, has it been a month now? Something um, like that? Yeah, I think so. About yeah, a month. Yeah. A little less than a month. Yeah, these kids. These kids all have like a million followers now. They've got their blue check marked. They have, they've taken their platform and they've run with it. So yeah, that's the main difference between uh, between Columbine and Parkland is that the the affected party is really stepping up in a big way. And just in two weeks, we've got the March for Our Lives mm -hmm. that's in DC that oh, yeah. I, I kind of wanted to attend. Of I'm course, honest, so. I'm already planning to. My mom is coming. Oh wow! Cool. Yeah, these yeah. these kids these kids are the future. Well, I also think it's really interesting that you mention, or this article rather. I thought it was amazing as well. Um, I really enjoyed reading it um, and editing it because I didn't really have to edit it. Um, but you kind of looking from Parkland to now, um, you you kind of mentioned that this is the future. But I also think like remnants of the past still exist, just because Trump is about to. I think tomorrow. Um, he's about to have a summit of video game people at the White House to talk about, I'm guessing, violence in video games. Gee, I wonder why that's coming up yeah. after Parkland. Yeah, and so, I mean, it's kind of, you you know, you have the future, but there's still remnants of this, like, past where it's all about the culture and well, video games and, and not about, um, quote-unquote, mental health and, like, just the access, plain old access to guns. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, Rob, your, with the piece you wanted to talk about kind of delves into the to the past even more mm -hmm. in an interesting way. Yeah, but yes, so uh, to continue the Parkland idea, um, uh, our writer, Honora Gibbons, in the opinion section, has she was studying abroad for a semester and came back with a very, very strong and compelling uh, opinions piece. It's, it's titled 50 Years of Students Under Fire in Classrooms and in Print. And it's about uh, how the anti-war movement in uh, 1968 amongst college students actually is mirroring uh, Parkland students, not just in the sense that it's students coming together and speaking out, but also that the media has given them some hostile treatments. Um, and I think a big difference between the past and now is that in 68, there was a lot less credibility on the side of the students. And that's because they didn't have the same horizontal media that the students now do, like social media, where they can just, like you say, get on and be their own megaphone. Um, back then, media was so much more centralized. 
And once the narrative formed, it was a, it was a shell that was hard to break. Some more mainstream articles criticized the students in the 60s. Washington Post was cited in honors article as well as the Chicago Tribune. So these are news outlets that today we would see on the same side as Parkland. So I think it's uh, interesting to point out Honora did a good job not trying to alienate anyone in this article. But I think one way to take this a step further is that we're seeing an ideological response this time. We're seeing the right come after these students and not the center or the left. Whereas we, we kind of saw criticism from all sides in 1968. Mm -hmm. So I think that's extremely interesting and I would encourage everyone to read the article. It's great. Well, um, you, you were talking about how as much as things change, uh, they stay the same. Uh, we're also seeing uh, the alt-right come out in uh, full force. And this was, it reminded me um, uh, after Sandy Hook when all the right. conspiracy theories started to take place. And immediately with Parkland, people are accusing that one kid of being a crisis actor. Uh, and they fabricated yearbook photos. Yeah, which is just awful. As much as social media has helped these kids out, uh, Reddit and Alex Jones have... People like that have, have done the opposite. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's again back to the back to the Columbi Columbine thing. These kids probably had voices like this in their heads, in their ears too, tell telling them their opinions did matter or calling them if they spoke out, right. uh, phonies and and it wasn't just worse. It was, and something that I think Honor's article hit right on the head is that although the alt right did do these horrible things with the crisis actor rumors and stuff, there was also more establishment outlets who. We're saying kind of the concerning things like the Federalists. Uh, they said something about how the, the kids, you know, they're not policy experts. Mm -hmm. They shouldn't be weighing in on this debate. Yeah. They were like pretty much summed it up to no offense. Being part of a school shooting doesn't mean you yeah, You're not qualified. A, yeah. You're not um, qualified to have an opinion. Ben Shapiro, who used to be more fringe and is now a lot more mainstream, has also said things to the same effect in... Uh, where does he write for now? Daily Wire. Right. Lucian Wintrich, who is a, uh, the Gateway Pundit, criticized um, David Hogg, the, uh, the crisis actor in Air Quotes, <laughs> and he said that he was heavily coached on lines and is merely reciting a script. So maybe that he's not actually 25 or whatever, but <laughs> that he, once he became the face of this movement, he was hijacked by liberals, and that's a narrative we're seeing on Fox News, and yeah. so... This is kind of a tangent, but this reminds me of the whole shut up and dribble thing, mm -hmm. where like if you aren't, a, if you're an athlete or if you're an actor or if you're someone who isn't directly engaged in politics, your opinion doesn't count and you shouldn't, you shouldn't give it. Mm -hmm. Right. Which I, I can't think of a more hurtful. Anti-democratic. That's a better way to put yeah. it. Anti-democratic um, notion. Notion. That could potentially harm our public discourse going forward more mm -hmm. than shut up and dribble. Yeah. And just, I mean, coming back to the Parkland students, just the willingness of adults to just blanket discount high schoolers just because they're high schoolers mm -hmm. is very um, disturbing, mm -hmm. I would say, yeah. considering um, a lot of the massive achievements that young people have made, especially in recent times. I know that it's, it's obvious that young people definitely have a lot to learn and you know it is harder to speak on such big issues without a lot of life experience but that doesn't mean that people who have experienced trauma and have lived through something that none of us unless you've been in a mass shooting you can't 
understand what that's like. You know, how are we supposed to cover an issue without using first-hand sources? It's a really interesting thing that they're asking because they're saying, you know, we don't want to hear from these people because they're just kids. So then who are we going to ask about this, about what the shooting was like and what this means? I mean, you know, why would we throw their voices away, especially when, you know, they're they're the primary source? And the, yeah, yeah um, go, ahead, go ahead. Sorry, you just reminded me, I'm in Austin's Columbine article. He uh, quoted a survivor of the of the Columbine sh- uh, shooting who, I, and uh, here, here's the quote. I'm sure that these Parkland students are feeling that way, which earlier in the sentence was a fog and a daze. Um, but this... But they're putting their energy into activism, and I think that's a really healthy way to deal with the horrific emotions surrounding what they just went through, right. end quote. So to, to your point, these kids are taking the trauma and putting it into something they feel yeah. will help ensure no one else will ever have to go through what they went through again. I, I want to plug another article here from the opinion section, which is Alana Davis's article uh, about how Parkland survivors join a robust, diverse community of young online activists, and that... When we talk about the, the credibility of, of young people to, to do something in politics and to have a voice, Alana kind of highlights people who have been at it for years now, and that includes DACA recipients and Black Lives Matter and the LGBT community. And it's really important to point out but that a lot of this activism would not be possible if it wasn't for, for social media and the internet. And, and it, it, maybe we are in an era where young people can have a voice more. Maybe we are in a time when despite the fact that they're not experts, that young people can chime in in politics. So, yeah. I mean, I always thought the idea that young people, this argument that young people aren't credible or don't have a voice is just so silly because when you look at 1968, like the free speech movement, like that was started on a college campus. Mm -hmm. Civil rights movement, that that was on the backs of young people. Mm -hmm. And I mean, yeah. And I think, yeah. And I think it's just so easy for people who don't like that change. I mean, like the 1968 people were literally called the counterculture for a reason. You kind of want to put this in the bubble of just like, oh, it's just the culture. Like it's not politics. It's just the culture. Yeah. And it's just like blanket statements. Oh, like you're a communist. Oh, you're young. Oh, you're in college. Oh, you're in high school. It's just silly to say young people don't have a voice because they're often, I feel, that they're the most powerful voices in the room. And, and, and again, this cannot be stressed enough. Young people have spent their entire lives honing their voices on social media. Right. And they know how to be snarky and they know how to be a little rude when they need to be. And they know how to, to dunk on people when they're saying silly things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and they also, yeah, and they also watched countless school shooting after school shooting after school shooting. So, they were really tired yeah. Of it. Which I is mean, sad, but yeah. it's, I guess it's yeah. good just in the sense that they can, they're the ones in the prime position to do something about it now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, there's just such a pattern with school shootings that, it, you know, it really does give teenagers cause to be afraid and yet they're still forced to go to school. And I think that that feeling of being trapped and then having the anxiety of the trapped feeling just be completely dismissed by adults is what's like really driving this movement. Well, I'm not even trying to do a bridge here. <laughs> the next bullet point that we have, Robert Mueller, <laughs> Russia. Um, we wanted to quickly talk about this. Yeah, we can quickly um, touch on it because I definitely want to um, talk about the hatchet at the end there. Yes, so, I think we all need to get to the GW hatchet, but we have to, to, to power through the Russia investigation <laughs> right. real quick. We gotta eat our vegetables first. <laughs> before, um, before the donut. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I think there's a lot to talk about with the Mueller investigation, and we kind of talked about the Nunberg stuff, so I think the only other thing um, I want to bring up is that so today coincidentally two different articles dropped one from the Washington Post 
about a secret meeting between, or not secret, depending on who you believe. Um, <laughs> a planned or a not planned. Right. Depending <laughs> on who you believe. Between the founder of uh, Blackwater, yeah. which is the, a, mil- a private military company, and a top-ranking Russian official, um, apparently trying to open a back channel between the Kremlin and the Trump administration prior to the inauguration. And then the New York Times also dropped an article saying Trump spoke to witnesses about matters they discussed with special counsel. And what joins these two articles is that they both only have anonymous sources. There would be no news in either of these articles without anonymous sources. <laughs> yeah. Nothing is new except for what the anonymous sources had to say. And we take we take anonymous sources for granted uh, here in Washington, D.C. And it's important to remember that out in the rest of the country, people do not trust them. And if there's public opinion polling over decades to back this up, going all the way back to Watergate, um, a majority of people have always not trusted. And this isn't just Trump's people. This is people of all political ideologies. Um, I would say it definitely, the feeling is heightened on the ends of the political spectrum. I know plenty on the far left, too, are the same way. So I think it's uh, it's interesting. Do Is it possible to keep to keep going, reporting the Mueller investigation like this? Or is every time you cite anonymous sources, does it kind of just feed the fire on the right? This is one of the rare issues that I think Trump has a point on. Yeah. Uh, he's constantly tweeting about that you can't trust media stories that rely on anonymous sources, which, not entirely true. You can't completely discount anonymous sources, but my Of God. course, of course. But my God, articles like this, A, they come out of these little news nuggets that I don't know how important they are, and B, if, I, if there's not a real source behind them, I don't know what to trust. And I mean, this one especially, like, I was kind of excited for it, but then I realized that this meeting allegedly took place in January 2017, right. which is after Trump had gotten elected, which, as far as I know, means that it has nothing to do with collusion. And I thought that, he, that Robert Mueller was supposed to be investigating collusion. Right. So maybe I'm just salty now because I'm waiting for some real news to drop in this investigation, and it feels like it's taken, taking well, a long time. there's been some but... good... Uh, I think there's been a, a good mix of uh, strong news and this more kind of... Maybe news that we should be more skeptical of. Uh, like the things with, uh, with Rick Gates and the indictments, I think, uh, are... That was, that was real news. Right. Yeah. That's stuff that's, to talk that's about. That's real, because you have evidence. Right. <laughs> you, you have, have like, a paper. <laughs> you can, have an indictment. You have, <laughs> you have sources you can name. Yes. So I, I, I think, um, and this applies to the media and to liberals, uh, that maybe let's stop jumping the gun on this, because at the end of the day, we all talk, we all praise, or uh, the, me- the media praises Mueller at every, every turn as bipartisan, and, you know, a good, just a good ethical homie um so let him be that person and let us report the news and not have to to reach when maybe we don't have to i think the washington posts if if we're, we take a page from the water the way they investigate Watergate, is that they just want they want to just keep putting little cracks in the windshield and just keep maybe the next time they publish the anonymous source they'll finally <laughs> But I think uh, there have been big enough burritos so far that they can just keep reporting the real news. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's some sort of transition to the hatchet. It is. I'm not even going to pretend to do a bridge. We're just going to hop into the hatchet. Yeah. So <laughs> this is what we've all wanted to talk about the most. For, for, for our non-GW listeners, yes. uh, GW's central 
student source of news is our campus newspaper, the GW Hatchet. Um, and there has been uh, some controversy, I guess, over their uh, opinions page recently. Um, it started when, on March 5th, an article was published, it looks like in the middle of the night, um, titled, Conservative Students at GW Must Reevaluate Their Beliefs. Um, and it's, it's basically a entire piece saying that because you have read this article, if you were conservative, you should now be a liberal, which is... <laughs> It's, it's magic. A, it's a cold take. Um, Switch. That, it's that's a cold a, take. We call a cold yes. take in the opinions world. Oh, my God. As, <laughs> it is one of the coldest takes I've ever seen. It is. To be fair. It's a, it's a cold slice. What, and here's the, here's the thing. I'll, I'll, I'll make two caveats here. One, I am the opinions editor, and so I feel angry that this was published because... <laughs> and the problem is the, the author, um, Nassim Othman. Othman's claims about conservatism and how they affect how the policies affect marginalized groups and how maybe more or less market strategies to I mean I agree with him I agree that I as a liberal would love conservatives to, stop to reevaluate being, stop their doing beliefs. what they're doing right like that's the whole point of being a but liberal. The, the point of an opinions article and I'm not the opinions guru but I, I, I would say... You're, you, you're, you're our opinion. Yes, really are. I'm the one uh, at this table. So I will say this, that opinions pages are not about just pure ideology. They're about making an argument. And the point of an opinions piece is that someone reading it who might not agree with you could actually... Maybe you could find common ground. And it's not always about finding common ground. You're allowed to write hard ideological pieces. I did when I was an opinions writer. I went for Trump's throat in every article ever. Um, and that's just because that's how I feel. But there are stylized ways to do that. There are ways where you can incorporate current events and we can talk about trends and actually do some analysis and make a case. Mm -hmm. You got to make a case. You got to make a case. And you have to you have to call people out and you have and part of your case needs to be case studies where you, where you bring in specific right. examples, specific people who um, exemplify your point. Um, and the, to be fair to Offman that there, he did cite sources, but the problem, the, he, he did explain himself, but the problem was that he wasn't explaining, uh, he wasn't explaining a policy position or there wasn't an opinion. Context. There wasn't an opinion. Yeah. It was an ideology put forward. Mm -hmm. And not just my ideology on an issue. It was my ideology. Like, this is my entire is political my belief. Mm -hmm. I'm yeah. going to put it into a thousand words and claim <laughs> that everyone else should agree. And even though I happen to agree with his worldview, I just don't think that's the way to go about it. And to make things worse, the hatchet went ahead and, pub and let someone publish a response piece about... Mm, and they put it on the front page, too. Right. It said, liberal students at GW must reevaluate their behavior by Abigail uh, Maroney, I think her name is pronounced. Um, and these are both GW students. And I think another thing that makes me mad about this is that the hatchet is not just the news. It is GW news. And the opinions pages, if you go and read them, there are great articles by people who have things to say about GW. People who have things to say like, uh, Marin Christensen wrote an article, My Disability Was Ignored for Six Years, It's Time to Listen, talking about how it's college students with dyslexia have 
certain challenges that we might not. That's how you use an opinions page. Um, or money spent on GW's outside fundraising should be put towards students. That is not a cold take. That is a hot take. Universities should ban research funding from anti-environmental companies. Also a hot opinion piece that is ideological. It's taking a very hard ideological right. stance, but it has context. There's a specific issue. It's, and, it's and related people, to GW. It's related to GW. Because if I wanted to see liberals and conservatives argue, I can go to any website. I can, you just go I on Twitter, CNN, dude. Yeah. Go on CNN, go on Twitter, go to Thanksgiving. Let's have the hatchet be a place where we can talk about this campus and what it's like to be a student right. in I mean, an informed way. And if I were to take that take and heat it up in the microwave, what I would do, <laughs> yes. what I would do is uh, I put it in the microwave for ten minutes, and it would come out as an article about Yaf's recent anti-abortion protests, and then the liberal students' response to it. You know, that would be an amazing piece to cover if you wanted to talk about liberal versus conservative ideology. You could go out to the event and get quotes from people. You can talk about how this is a tradition that YAF has been doing for... I know this is their second one. There may have been more. This is just my second year at GW. For context, for yeah. people who don't go here again, the Young Americans Foundation, which is a, a right-leaning that has a chapter on most college campuses, and they did a... What was the rally called? Graveyard of the Innocents. Right. Oh, uh, they do that every year. Right. Yeah, they um, do it every stick year. Little, uh, they stick little crosses, crosses in the ground for all the... For aborted yeah. babies. Yes. yes. It's yes. kind of a really harrowing image to walk by. Right. Especially for, especially for people who may be survivors of sexual violence. Right. It's a mass um, shaming. It's, it's it definitely a shaming effort um, by conservative students that is very problematic um, and could be used as a very efficient case study to ask conservative students to maybe... Um, change or, or consider other people's viewpoints mm-hmm. and you know like I said that would be a way a way to heat this take up. One thing to point out yeah. is that Othman ultimately hurt his argument. I think yeah. so. And yeah, the reason course. is because he, it's called a softball. It's called an underhand pitch where you give the other side the golden opportunity to not just respond but to be more mature yeah. but to take the moral high ground to mm-hmm. act like they are better at discourse and I think if you wonder why conservative students don't change their mind, your article trying to change their minds is why they don't change their minds. Right. Yeah. I mean listen Hatchet is a learning publication. Oh, I respect that. This yeah. guy was a freshman. His op-eds are probably going to need some shopping. Like, I mean, honestly. But when I read this, as an editor, I was just like, oh my god. I was making edits in my head. Stop. You need to loop in some other people. Like, an opinion. Something to, like, ground your argument and just put some meat to the potatoes, I guess. I mean, it frustrated me. And... I'm not going to say if his opinion is valid or not, but the point is is that this is the perfect kind of example of the lost art of the op-ed, where the op-ed is supposed to be persuasive. It's supposed to persuade you into thinking, oh, yes, like, I will entertain this thought. I might agree or disagree, but I'll entertain it because it made me think. In general, the industry is kind of having an op-ed crisis, if you want to take a larger view. The New York Times is having some trouble with their op-ed section, namely people like Quinn Norton, who was hired and then fired five hours later after... Some careful readers pointed out that Quinn Norton used gay slurs and the N-word on her Twitter account, which is not okay. A lot of op-ed pages are trying to be contrarian with their views and putting out things that they know will get clicks, like hate clicks. Yeah. Um, uh, hate click is still a click. Yeah, hate click is still a click. students have done that here. Yeah. Uh, what was the... What so are liberal of, ones, for the record. Yeah. Obviously. Uh... Well, I'm thinking of this article, okay, so on the um, College Republicans website, 
they published an article about um, Halloween costumes. Oh, right. Do you remember that? Yeah, it was just a trash piece about how dressing up like a Mexican is totally fine if you're white. And the whole point cool. was to get liberal students to click on it and get right, mad. Right, and get yeah. rage, rage, rage clicks. clicks. And it's all about reactionary opinions, which... From the humble beginnings right. of op-ed pages, I don't think that's what was intended. But now it is formed into a bastion of partisanship where it's supposed to be a area of intellectual debate and thought. Right, and the, the job of the opinions editor is to be a curator of thought. It's to be, because we choose our media based on who we are. Are you a with. thought curator, Rob? I'm not. I was I was about to say. <laughs> are you a thought curator? I'm not. Let me, let me. You're our thought curator. Yes, yes, yes. But the point of the op-ed pages is that no matter what outlet you're at, whether it be the, the bigger ones or more diverse, maybe more ideological outlets, is that it's supposed to be a place where you can come and see the forum. And like not all news sites provide the public forum. But the editorial pages should be a place where all opinions can can be harbored. It's the only place left where we can try to persuade someone, mm-hmm. like you said. Yeah. It, like the point is not to alienate; it's mm-hmm. to persuade. Yeah. And it's it has been one of the few places where you can find two people of differing opinions right next to each other, mm-hmm. uh, and that's kind of going away. All right, well, I think we're going to have to get, like, a t-shirt for you that says Thought Curator. (laughs) Um, Okay, so it's getting late over here in D.C., and so we're going to put an end to this podcast, but we hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. Um, We're going to put this on SoundCloud, so there's no subscribe, but just keep listening, I guess. Um, And have a great rest of the week, guys. Bye, everybody. (laughs) 